It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. You're tuned into Christian Questions. Join the conversation now on air or online at ChristianQuestions.com and download our app by searching for Christian Questions Radio. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Mark Twain once said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Good morning, I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Jonathan, I can't hear you. You got Jonathan on the line? All right, Jonathan, try it again. All right, well, he... Perspective has its basis in three things. Okay. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. And folks, thanks for joining us today. This is a call-in format. We are caller-friendly. So let's get started. Jonathan, last week I was away at a Bible conference in Orlando, Florida, and today you're out of the studio. Where are you? That's right, Rick. I'm in Delaware. My father's not feeling very well, and, uh, and uh, we're here to support the family and help them out. Okay, good. Hope things uh, work out as well as they possibly can on your end with your dad not doing well. But uh, thank you for calling in this morning. So what is the subject matter for today? Well, Rick, our question is, what does the Bible say about the ISIS crisis? And our theme text is found in Psalms, chapter 34, verse 16. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Okay, so we're talking about ISIS is ISIS really in the Bible? We're talking about terrorism. Terrorism. It is a fearful and horrific development in our present day. The barbaric and merciless treatment of those who stand in your way simply because of their religion or country of origin has been made to be a household conversation most recently by ISIS. So the question is, does the Bible talk about ISIS specifically? If so, what does it say? And if not, then why not? Jonathan, this is an important question. Uh, ISIS is on the minds of people all over the world, uh, and rightfully so. So to deal with such a question, we asked uh, one of our favorite guests to reappear in our studio, and he is here with me now. We have David Stein with us this morning. Good morning, David. Good morning, Rick, and good morning, uh, Jonathan, and good morning, Fred, behind the board. <laughs> it's good to have you back, David, and we often have you come in when we do programs with, uh, with, a, with a prophetic relationship or sometimes a scientific relationship. And uh, so uh, today is a very, very specific focus on, uh, on, on ISIS and Scripture. And just before we get started, for those people who may not know who you are, who are you, where do you come from, and just a, a, a quick little background on yourself. Well, I am an elder in the Allentown Bible Students class out in Pennsylvania and uh, have been a Bible student, uh, gosh, since I was about 17, 18 years old. Uh, I enjoy um, the scientific part of and technical part of uh, the truth. And as you mentioned, I've been on before. We've talked about those things. My background is in engineering, actually, so I have a little bit of a technical background. But I am so excited about prophecy. Prophecy, is, especially the time that we live in, is just so vibrant today. And to be able to see the working out of things that God had written thousands of years ago uh, is just, it's just it, it's a tickling kind of thing to do. And for Christians today that are worried about what direction the world is going in, 
prophecy not only provides us a little insight into what's happening, but it gives us hope for a wonderful future. It really does. In, in last week's program, we were looking at what the world will look like in the 22nd century. And that was kind of a broad stroke approach to prophecy. Well, this week is a very focused approach to prophecy. So same kind of subject matter, but a very, very different uh, approach, a very, very different look. And as we get started, uh, David, you know, first of all, folks, we want to just give you a sense of today's discussion, our disclosure, if you will. And whenever we give you a program disclosure at the beginning, that means pay attention because uh, it might get a little dicey. And, and our program today uh, has information that's really, really troubling in nature. The practices of ISIS are are horrific in, in most every way, but it illustrates just how bad evil still is in the world and how wonderful it will be when God's kingdom eradicates this plague of wicked, wickedness. So, so folks, when we go through some sound bites and some of our discussion, it might get somewhat graphic, and we just want to let you know that uh, ahead of time. So let's get started, David. Let's just jump right into this. We're focusing on the main question, and Jonathan, when we do the, the coming back into the program, fo- the, the main question is, is ISIS in the Bible? Is ISIS in the Bible? That's really what we want to look at. So, first of all, what is ISIS? I mean, I-S-I-S. What is that? Well, let's give some definitions. Uh, As we get on here in our first segment, we're going to look at a number of audio clips that give us a little bit of background uh, into the genesis of ISIS and where it came from. But uh, just by way of definition, ISIS stands for the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. And again, we'll see a little bit of how that came into existence. Sometimes... Uh, now, now, oftentimes, President Obama doesn't say ISIS. He says ISIL, I-S-I-L. Yeah, interesting. He's about the only one in his administration that used that. And that stands for the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. Now, what's the Levant? Well, the right. Le- Levant is that area there. You know, it, it's kind of a highbrow way of saying ISIS. But uh, truth to be told, uh, ISIS has changed its name once more. They call themselves the Islamic State now. And uh, so when you see IS, that's really what it's talking about. ISIS continues to be the way that the Western world talks about it, but they define themselves as the IS. And the way that that came about, that, that final shrinking, is that one of the leaders who we'll talk about declared a worldwide caliphate. Right, right. And what is a caliphate? Well, basically, it's a kingdom with Islam, the religion, as the basis for all of law in that. It's a theological empire. Right. And, uh, of course, this leader of ISIS is the, is the caliph, the grand caliph. Now, what that te- says to uh, Muslims around the world, it was intended to be a rallying call, that now the caliphate of Islam has been established. We call on all Muslims to join us now and to support that. So, and, and originally you had ISIS as ISI, uh, the, the Islamic State of Iraq. Then it was ISIS, the Islamic State of Syria. That's right. Then ISIL of the general area. Now it's just... The caliphate. Now it's just, this is our objective. It's very clear. It's very easy to grasp. We want to rule the world through the our interpretation of Muslim scripture. Yeah, I think that's very important to notice that that is the objective right. of ISIS. Exactly. To rule the world and to establish their version. And let's make that very clear. Right. Right. Their version of Islam. All right. And, and when you think about um, the, the, the whole perspective on, on, on this... Just like in Christianity, in Islam, there are a lot of different perspectives, and there are a vast majority of Muslims who do not necessarily follow after the principles of violence that that this particular group um, 
adheres to. But, you, you know, the guy with the biggest stick gets the most attention. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and so that's why we end up talking about them, and that's why we ask the question, are they in the Bible? Because their military conquest is a conscription of children. They murder all who oppose. We've seen the horrible, horrible videos, heard the, 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 the amazing threats. So, so let's just try to establish a very brief history of, um, of ISIS uh, this morning. And so, Fred, let's go to our first soundbite. This is going to be from uh, just a little bit about the origins uh, of ISIS. The Islamic State of Iraq and Syria is a phenomenon so terrible and shocking it seems impossible. It controls an area the size of the United Kingdom, commits mass atrocities, and launches terror attacks abroad. But to understand ISIS, it helps to tell the story of its rise. That story begins far away and many years before the group existed. In 1979, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan to defend a puppet dictator against rebels. Young men from the Middle East flock in to join the rebels. Many see it as a religious struggle, and some develop extremist views. Among them is a well-educated young Saudi named Osama bin Laden. Also in Afghanistan is a semi-literate former street thug from Jordan calls himself Abu Musab al-Zakari. They do not get along, never will, but will create the groups we today know as al-Qaeda and as ISIS. Okay, so that gives us um, a little bit of a sense of what's happening um, or, or what happened. And you go way back to 1979, you didn't even have the idea of ISIS being anywhere. It, it's very interesting to see the genesis of that, that this whole starts. Okay, we're back. We're back. Well, that was interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the whole thing, you said the whole thing starts? With ideas. You right. see how important ideas here. And these radical ideas, the, the very roots of all this began all the way back, as, as we saw in the sound clip in 1979. But they ripen, and they, they begin to gather more adherence. And then as the stage, the world stage changes with wars and with revolutions and things like that, it pushes them into certain directions that becomes a movement. Right. So an idea needs an opportunity. And so as the world stage changes, the opportunity begins to present itself, sometimes in a very small way. And that's what that soundbite was saying. You had these small beginnings for something now that that everybody in the world knows about. All right. I I'm, don't mean to cut you off, but we want to try to plow through a lot sure, of information sure. right here. All right, so so Fred, let's go to the next soundbite. This is ISIS now, uh, again, looking at the rise of ISIS explained. And this is uh, up through 2014. How did they get to where they are or were back in 2014? In April 2013, Baghdadi announces he is taking control of all al-Qaeda allied forces in Syria and Iraq. His group expands into Syria, becoming the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS. Al-Qaeda rejects Baghdadi's power grab, and in 2014 formally exiles him. The two jihadist groups, long at odds, are now at war. ISIS grows powerful in Syria, in part because Assad tolerates its rise, which he does because it divides his enemies within Syria, and because foreign powers are too focused on ISIS now to worry about Assad. By June 2014, ISIS has built an army in Syria, and it launches a military-style invasion into Iraq. The Iraqi army, weakened by corruption, folds with little fight, and many Sunnis are tired of their Shia-dominated and increasingly authoritarian government, and welcome, or at least tolerate, ISIS's arrival. Within days, ISIS controls a third of Iraq and a big part of Syria. 
So ISIS now begins its development and starts to pick up steam. It goes from from one terrorist leader to another, and it, it's the, um, the the Sunni versus Shia rivalry that goes on within within um, Islam. But but just let's focus on a little bit just for a moment on the funding. Where, where does ISIS get their money? Well, that's a question that that comes to mind right away. They're, they've got all of these weapons. They've got all of this military hardware. How are they doing it? Yeah. Well, t- truth be told, there are wealthy donors in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia, and in some of the other Eastern countries that want to see change that they don't like. For, exa- for example, in Saudi Arabia, it's ruled by a well, a, a kingship, a monarchy. There, they would like to change that. So they're funneling money. Uh, it, within the ISIS territories themselves, they have oil. They've right, gotten oil right. They've taken wells, over oil wells and so they're using that. They're smuggling it, and, and we might just note here that they smuggle it because nobody in the open market will buy the terrorists' oil, but that doesn't uh, deter them from being able to get it sold and through other ways. When they take over a city, they loot the banks. They take all the money in the bank and they use it for themselves. They charge local businesses protection fees. I mean, this sounds like the mafia, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, does. it? it does uh, the mafia in a very big, big scale. Yeah. And then since they're a government now, they tax everybody. They tax farmers and they... We, we have a little clip that gives a little bit about where this, uh, where this money, where the funding comes from, from it in our next clip. Okay, we're going to go to that next soundbite in just a second. So, so folks, what we're doing in this first segment is saying, okay, where did it come from and how powerful is it? And we're just laying some, some at best, sketchy groundwork to give you a sense that this is, is something formidable that needs to be dealt with. So let's go to this next soundbite uh, inside the $2 billion ISIS war machine. It's the best-funded terrorist organization in history. ISIS controls big territory in Syria and Iraq. And it runs its pillaging machine like a business to fund its ultimate goal, one ginormous Islamic State. Let's follow the money. At its heart, ISIS is a criminal enterprise. In 2014, the U.S. Treasury Department says it made at least half a billion dollars from seizing banks in northern and western Iraq. But banks aren't the only target. ISIS fighters loot houses, they steal cars, chop them up for parts, they trade weapons and people. It's a revenue stream that thrives on territory. The more they control, the more they can steal. So, it just gets worse. The the bigger the power, the, the, the farther the reach, the more the territory, the more places you can fund something that is so completely uh, awful. And do you notice how the in this clip they characterize it as a criminal organization? Yeah, yeah, because they are they are literally taking places over they have no right to be. So we're just getting started laying out what ISIS is and how they do what they do. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick with our special guest David Stein. And our subject is, what does the Bible say about the ISIS crisis? Coming up, so is ISIS in the Bible, and where would we find it? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. When the world you're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject for today is, What Does the Bible Say About ISIS? We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. 
That's 866-985-4ALL. Or you could message us on your app. And if you have a smartphone and you don't have our free app, go to your app store and type in Christian Questions Radio. Okay, so in the first segment, Jonathan, we did something we almost never do. We didn't quote a single scripture. <laughs> because we want to lay the groundwork of what ISIS is, where they come from, where they're going. And David, a couple of things we didn't touch on. Very, very quickly, their rulership style is a fascist-style rulership. What, what, is actually, what does that mean? Well, fascist means totalitarian. Uh, it means that there is an ideologue that if you don't follow, that uh, you're going to get cooked, basically. It's a, it's <laughs> get a con- cooked, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a do or die type of uh, of a situation literally when they conquer a population you either join us or you're killed if you're not a muslim you either convert or you're killed what i found in preparation for the program i looked at a lot of videos and that's one of, one of the places where our disclosure at the top of the mm-hmm. program came from uh it was horrific seeing some of the things that they did can you imagine Taking you, you got a grandson. How's your grandson? My grandson is eight, and I have two granddaughters that are just newborns. Oh, okay, well, <laughs> imagine taking your eight-year-old grandson, and they've done this with children as young as five, and say, "Here's a teddy bear. Behead it. Take the teddy bear's head off." Or they'll give the child a gun. Now they didn't show in the video whether it was loaded or not, but here's a five-year-old child pointing a gun at the back of a blindfolded man who is going to be executed. They don't show them executing them, but they have them practicing it. That, those, uh, those images are just, just awful. They will conscript young men in their newly conquered territories and uh, give them positions, even children, and they use terror on everyone that doesn't conform. And here's one important point. We rejoice in the freedom we have in this country, and you know the women's movement that, has, that, that started basically as early as the 19th century for voting rights. Women under this form of Islam have no rights at all. They're not permitted to be seen in public without right. a male relative, and uh, they just don't participate at all. And this is the type of regime now, the ideologue, the doctrines that ISIS promotes. And it's gathering momentum, and it's getting bigger, and it's getting stronger, and, and they've gathered more territory. So it, it's a, it is a very, very serious and, and uh, um, disheartening situation. Let's go to another soundbite, another fr- soundbite from CNN, ISIS terror and bar- barbarity in Raqqa. And this was from December of uh, 2015. So this is just literally a couple months old. The city burst into our consciousness with these horrific images. Enemies of ISIS killed in battle, their severed heads displayed on poles in the city center. Crucifixions of non-believers out in the open for passing residents to see. Western journalists can't get into Raqqa, but residents and human rights groups say atrocities are part of life in this ISIS stronghold. All right, so, you know, and, and folks, I apologize for, for the graphic nature of, of this, but you have to understand what it is we're looking at. And the big question is, is ISIS in the Bible? Uh, it, because you see this on such a, a, a um, an overtly visible scale in the world is ISIS in the Bible. Now, before we get to that uh, a little bit, and, and as we begin to develop the future objectives, folks, if you do have a thought, you uh, have a question uh, on the subject matter of ISIS and Scripture, um, you can certainly give us a call at 866-985-4255, toll free, 866-985-4ALL. We are live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central, and that means we're on right now. And don't forget to sign up for CQ Rewind, the full edition, at our website, ChristianQuestions.com, so that you have a document of the program and you have all the scriptures 
and all of the sound bites so that you can see the full understanding of the topic. Okay. I want to do one more soundbite. We're, we're jamming these soundbites in right up front in the program because it just gives us a sense of where we are. Uh, and, and, and this is really looking at, okay, what's, what's ISIS? What's the future objective of ISIS? We know they want to extend terrorism throughout the world. You already mentioned that. That's their idea. That's the idea that has now given seed to opportunity, and opportunity has given seed to action, and action has given seed to having the world know they exist. And that's a big, big, big leap from just having some little idea. So let's just go again. This is a, a CNN uh, news broadcast from uh, December of 2015, very short. ISIS has changed its message. More and more, it is calling on people around the world to carry out jihad right where they are. Whatever they can do, take up a gun, make a bomb, and carry out terror attacks, particularly with a focus on the West more and more. So the idea is, all right, you know, they've, they've made progress in taking over territories sort of like an army. But now the message is anybody who believes in our, in our, in our approach, you go do it on your own. And it's interesting. We were talking about his, how historical things change a little bit. Uh, ISIS has, has lost some territory. Yes. They're, they're by no means quenched, but they lost a little territory. And that's when they began sending the word out. You know, we're losing here a little bit, but let's just expand this to everywhere else in the world. So you had the Paris bombings. You had the San Bernardino uh, uh, shooter, uh, these lone wolf type e- examples of it. That's what they want. And it takes a little more attention off of what's going on there. Right. Right. So what they're trying to do is wreak havoc in the way we understand the world. So, so when we look at ISIS, and we're going to get into scriptures in a moment here, the bottom line is they're just plain and simple. They're evil. They're dark. They, are, they, are, they represent the darkest representation of Islam that I know of. And they're very vocal, and they're very powerful in that representation. So, and, and we were talking about this earlier. Their religious fanaticism sounds awful lot like Nazi Germany. Well, well, doesn't it? I mean, the type of atrocities that uh, Germany uh, did back in the 30s and the 40s are identical to what ISIS is doing today. In both cases, you had an ideologue. In both cases, you had hate. In both cases, you have a desire for power. So, you know, the interesting thing, though, is Nazi Germany wasn't based on religion. But it, you have the same results. You have the same kind of the execution of power and the execution of those who, who hate you, you who, whom you hate. But one has a religious base. The other just had a, a base of, of, of social conquering. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, of course, you can't rule out the hatred of the Jews there as well. But in both cases, notice how Nazi got, Nazism got its power through fear. No one wanted to speak up. No one wanted to, uh, to be a force against it. You see in ISIS the exact same modus operandi. Okay. All right. So, just David, and I want to stress, I want to go really quickly through this. A couple of facts about Islam and the, where, where ISIS fits in the, in the general uh, world of Islam today. And then we're going to get into some scriptures and understanding who they are and are, are they mentioned in the Bible? I like how you said that ISIS is the darkest form of this because there's 1.6 billion Muslims in the world today, uh, but they don't all practice the same view of, uh, certainly in this America, the vast majority of American Islam would say, no, that's not us. Islam is supposed to be a religion of peace. And there is peace in the in the Quran, but there's also war in the Quran as well. So it comes down to a matter of interpretation. But this, these Muslims, this is 25% of the population of the earth. 
Now, they still aren't as, as numerous as Christians. There's about 2.2 billion Christians in the earth compared to the 1.6 billion. And it's also important to note, and we're going to see as we start to look into the scriptures, that there is a very large division in, in uh, modern Islam between what are called the Sunnis and what are called the Shiites. Okay. And that division is important, comes into us a little bit. One other thing. So, so wait, wait, you're saying that that division has a scriptural reflection that needs to be looked at? I believe it does. Now, that's interesting. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. One other thing, we tend to think of Islam as Arabic. Well, the religion is certainly Arabic in its source. That's where it started, Mohammed was an Arab. But it has spread throughout the world, and only 15% of uh, Muslims today are Arabic. Now, they still use Arabic as the language of right, worship. Right. That's what the Quran is written in. So every Muslim knows Arabic, knows the Arabic prayers and things like that. But only 15% of them genealogically uh, are Arabic. Okay, so... I ISIS has its roots, obviously, in Islam, and Islam has its roots in the Arab people. So, you know, students of Scripture have long understood certain prophecies as referring to Arab nations, and it's convenient to associate these nations with the religion of Islam. But you mentioned something important, that only 15% of Muslims are actually Arabic. So is that a good association, or do we need to be a little bit more careful with it? And I think you're going to establish that now as we begin to go through some scripture. Yeah, yeah. And there's two ways. The, the answer is yes and no. Uh, Pit so, figures. <laughs> we can never give a concrete answer. Well, here's the thing. Uh, when you look at Bible prophecy... Uh, there, there's interpretation involved. I would love to say that today you've got the prophet David on your program. <laughs> but I am not a prophet. I'm a Bible student. I certainly can't take the authority of a prophet. That means that I, along with millions of other Christians, we look at the Bible prophecies and we try to work out what they mean. That's one of the reasons we get together for fellowship and discussion. We work these things out and we try to get our interpretations as close as possible, both to history and what's taking place now today. So it... Looking at the fact that there are nations in the Bible that are Arabic, and you can make associations, and we will as we go on, and yet on the other side, only 15% of uh, Muslims are Arab, how can we find in the Scripture something that talks about this fanatical Islamic movement? And I think I have a text that might be able to do that for us. Okay, so let's take a look at that. Let's go to uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26. And this is going to help give us a basis to look at Islam from a scriptural perspective. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert will clip the hair of their temple. For all the nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. So now, for the average reader, David, they would look at this scripture and say, what? Okay, first of all, it's talking about, I will punish those who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. So it sounds like there's a contradiction of terms right there. So what does this scripture that's focusing on the, the concept of circumcision have to do with Islam and then with ISIS? Well, this, is, this provides an interesting way of looking at groups of people in the world today 
And I think that what the text does is kind of break out those uh, to help us a little bit. Now, you know, circumcision is not practiced universally. Right. But it is practiced almost universally among three groups of individuals. Jews, of course, they were among the original practices of it going all the way back to the time of Abraham. Christians. But what is interesting is that all Muslims practice circumcision. Now, those are the only three groups in the world that do this routinely. Now, we've got five nations here. Egypt, Judah, Edom, sons of Ammon, and Moab. That's right. And it says that they are circumcised. So these nations are, must represent peoples that practice circumcision. And the first thing you notice is that you have Egypt is certainly not Jewish. <laughs> That's right. Okay. <laughs> In fact, you know, on that point, we might say one other thing. We are d- going to do an interpretation of what these nations mean. Um, can you take a, uh, buy a, a flight ticket to Moab today? Uh, no, I don't know where Moab would be. And nobody, it doesn't exist today. That's the nations I don't know of, where it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Moab and Ammon have not existed since uh, centuries before Christ. And so, understanding that this references the last days, therefore, we conclude that Moab and Ammon, and these other nations as well, are symbolic of groups of peoples. All right, so how do you figure out what groups of people they're symbolic of? Great, they're symbolic, but that leaves you high and dry if you have a nation that hasn't existed in several thousand years. Yes. So, so let's go through these, list, listing them out just kind of quickly here to try to figure it out. Uh, I'm going to just give you one of the nations mentioned, and you give me what you think. Okay. okay? Judah. Well, Judah must refer to the Jews. I mean, that's where the word Jew comes from, Judah, the fleshly seed of Abraham. So of these five groups now, we've got the first group we would identify, interpretively, of course, as the Jews of the world today. And that was the easy one. That was the easy one. Okay, we'll start with the, okay, Egypt. Well, Egypt is is found in many places in Scripture, and again, we we wish we had more time to expand this, so we're just giving a real, as you mentioned at the beginning, a sketch on top. Egypt often represents the world. And in particular, we can see the Western world, the Western Christianized world. Not necessarily religiously Christian, but Christian in the way that their laws and their democracies and their society is laid out. Okay. So we would say that it represents Christendom, and Christendom does practice circumcision. Okay, Edom. Edom is another name for Esau, and if you remember Esau, uh, he gave up his birthright. Right. So he had Bad something. Move. Yeah. Uh, we're going to suggest that this represents nominal Christianity. That is, people that call themselves Christians, but they neither practice nor believe the, the morals and the ethics. Because of they had the right of birth and they gave it up. That, yeah. that, that does make sense. Okay, so we've got two, two nations left okay. representing two groups that practice circumcision. So mm-hmm. what, do we, what do we say about that? Well, what's left is who else is left now in the world that practices circumcision? Of Muslims. Muslims. Based on what you said before, right. Exactly right. So Ammon and Moab misrepresent the the Muslim movement that practices circumcision. But there's two of them there. Why two? Well, clearly, God's word must recognize that there is some division within, uh, within the Islamic community represented by these two. And there are several possibilities here, and they do overlap. You know, for example, we mentioned early Sunni and Shiite. All right, that goes all the way back to the time of Mohammed, and so there was a, a difference there. We also mentioned already Arab and non-Arab. We also mentioned that 15% are Arabs. Well, that's Semite. That means the other part are non-Semitic. And lastly, there's the peaceful versus the radical. So what you're saying then, the five nations, the last two are showing Islam, 
in in and the two main divisions within Islam. Exactly. Okay, so now we're starting to to, to zero in on what's actually happening here according to scripture and prophecy. What's next? This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick with our special guest David Stein and our subject, what does the Bible say about the ISIS crisis? Coming up, do the successes of ISIS follow the pattern of our biblical accounts? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject today is, What Does the Bible Say About the ISIS Crisis? We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. Or don't forget, you can message us on your app. So as we get back into this, David, we're, we're, we're here with our special guest, David Stein, talking about a prophetic view of the world today, specifically focusing on the Islamic world. And in the scripture we just read uh, in Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26, you suggested that two of those nations are representative of two of the divisions of Islam. Now, now we've done programs on the Middle East and Islam before. I don't recall you ever making that distinction before. Well, this is a distinction that I've just recently uh, come to appreciate, and it doesn't originate with me. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier the value of fellowship with other Christians. Uh, we need to talk with others about it, and this idea actually came from another, another dear Christian brother of mine. And uh, in understanding that this particular scripture now, it grows and it gives us an opportunity to leap off, which we're going to do here in this next segment. By identifying Ammon and Moab as two groups of Islam, the natural thing for a Bible student to do is, well, where else are these mentioned? What other scriptures are mentioned? And then now that starts to add meat unto our understanding of it. All right, and let's go to the next scripture in line that actually mentions Moab and Ammon. uh, Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the reviling of the sons of Ammon, with which they have taunted my people and have become arrogant against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual Desolation. All right, and let's just stop there for a second because there, there's some things there, David, and I know I, I, I feel bad because we've got to really go quickly over a lot of these things to try to get to the big picture. But having that suggestion of Ammon and Moab being the two divisions of Islam in Scripture, you know, the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the son of Ammon uh, becoming arrogant against their territory, that, that just, now that you mention it, you say, huh, that really does kind of sound real. Well, that's right. I mean, in past programs, we've looked at other scriptures that talked about the Arab nations right. in that same role. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. But here is another context, another scripture that shows that same thing. And please note that they are united in their hatred for God's people. Okay. Now, his, historically, I should say, if you, you just go back to the writings of Moses, you find that Moab and Ammon were always attacking uh, Moses' people, God's people. By the way, they come from the same father. Their father was Lot. 
Okay. And they were united in their hatred of Israel. So that is one of the things that we look for in the prophecy that we find fulfilled today. Curious, isn't it, that when you start to put things together, how they can now start to tell a story that was written thousands of years ago that's actually happening today. Let's continue with that scripture, Jonathan. I cut you off in the middle of verse 9. Let's uh, finish up Zephaniah 2, 8 through 10. The remnant of my people will plunder them, and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. This they will have in return for their pride, because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. So, very quickly on this, David, that doesn't sound like a good end for Moab and Ammon. Remember that in Scripture, uh, nations are, are talked about as in com- composite, and that the individuals within those nations are not necessarily the same thing. What I read this to is that those groups of, of uh, Islam, of Muslims, represented by that, that ideology... That focus, that motivation, those plans against Israel is going to be done away with. But the people themselves, and again, we're going to see this in the final segment, the people themselves are handled differently. And that's important from a Christian standpoint, also important from God's love. And and I think that's a, that's a principle that we talked about again last week and last week's program, folks. So if you missed it, go back to the archives at ChristianQuestions.com. Check out the program from last week. What will the world look like in the twenty second century? Same principle applies there. Yeah. Okay. And, go ahead. And one more thing with Zechariah. If you read the context, you see that this has an end times uh, application, and that and that's of course how we're how we're applying it. And notice when you read it here, it says the taunting and the revilings. There's a lot of verbal abuse going on towards God's people, and we see that, and we have seen that in the 20th and now the 21st century. And notice it become arrogant against their territory. So there's land involved right, here. Right, right, right. And that's why I say it's, it seems eerily real when you look at it, and maybe the reason is because it is real. Maybe because it is talking about what's actually happening. It is Israel. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, if you have a thought, it's 866-985-4255, toll-free, 866-985-4ALL. Uh, let, let's just continue forward because we've got a lot we want to cover. Let's go to a little bit more on this, this judgment of Moab. And again, when we think of Moab now, let's think of Muslim nations. Now, now let me just ask you before we go to Isaiah 25, 8 through 11. Is, 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 is ISIS mentioned in the Bible? Just give me a straight-up yes or no answer. No. No. Okay. No, if you go to a concordance and look up ISIS, you will not find it. But is ISIS identified prophetically in the Bible, perhaps by another name? Well, absolutely. And I think what we just looked at now, we see that Ammon and Moab, at least in those contexts of scriptures, represents the Islamic movement. And perhaps the division there of into the two may refer to the fanatical elements that ISIS represents. So the fanatical elements that ISIS represents, not necessarily just ISIS, but the elements that they represent. I think that's exactly right. Okay, that's good. Just wanted to get that off my chest. All right, Isaiah chapter 25, verses 8 through 11. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God from whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord from whom we have waited. 
let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. All right, so so far in the scripture, Dave, this is all good. And this is this is beyond end times. This is really, um, and again, last week's program, folks, really was kind of an introduction for this week because we were talking about the day of judgment has to be mentioned. You can't mention judgment for the day of judgment without, without mention, re- mentioning reconciliation. That's right. The two of those things have to be mentioned together. And this scripture in Isaiah 25 is really describing that process. So it's a very, very good and very positive process. <laughs> All right, so Jonathan, let's finish up those verses. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trodden down in his place, as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. And it will spread out his hand in the middle of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hand. Okay, so interestingly, you have just Moab mentioned in the scripture uh, from the standpoint of being put in a position of judgment in the context of this great reconciliation, recon- reconciliatory movement by God. So how do you put all that together? Well, this is interesting. Again, we've been sort of applying Moab to be the more fanatical elements, Mm -hmm. and it's not mentioned in this case. I wanted the earlier part of these verses read to show the context here about the swallowing up. We are, we generally are applying it for purposes of this program to the to these radical elements, right. but we might also apply this scripture all the way down at the end of the uh, reign of Christ when those radical elements are destroyed for the final time. But you see the continuity here. It's the radical elements to hate against God's people that is preserved. Right, and in the context of the previous scriptures where all tears are wiped away and the reproach of people is taken away and, and you know, God rules with, with, with glory. Uh, so you have goodness surrounding this throwing the, 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 those radical elements onto the manure pile. That's really what it says. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, okay. So, you know, folks, is ISIS in the Bible? And the answer is yes and no. First of all, there you go again, equivocating. Right, and you have to because what we're looking at, what we're dealing with at this point in time is a radical movement, but it is just one radical movement, and it seems awfully big to us. But how big is it in relation to, for instance, World War II? Yeah, it, there's no comparison there. It pales. But what's interesting is that ISIS could well be destroyed by Western powers, and then another come up, maybe ASIS or ISIS or whatever. The well, Al Qaeda, same kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. Al Qaeda was was very well overcome, and part of the elements of Al Qaeda now evolved into this ISIS, and this could happen again. And that's why we're not saying it's in there ISIS specifically, but the movement, the ideology, and where they're being gathered to, to the final battles is common. So the ideology and the opportunity has the uh, name of ISIS today, but the ideology and opportunity may have a different name tomorrow. It's all under one covering in Scripture. That's right. Okay. So, so just, you know, and, and we're talking about God permitting evil, and, and God permits evil on the earth to work out his eternal purposes. We know that. Again, last week's program was all about that as well. Uh, he doesn't let it go beyond certain boundaries. You and I have discussed this many times. God will interfere when he deems it necessary to interfere. Yes, yes. And going with the theme of our program today, that the face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them, this is just one more movement in the in the past 6,000 plus years of human history 
that has been a wicked movement and has been a problem uh, because of the suffering that it produces. And God has given us many examples in Scripture of allowing evil to come to its full and then stopping it. Yes, that's okay. important. All right, and we don't have time to go into it. Seeker Rewind, the full edition. If you don't get it, sign up for it so you can get these scriptures. Genesis fifteen sixteen talks about the Canaanites. There's some other examples very quickly. The flood. God allowed evil to go to a certain point then stopped it. The destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Same principle. He allowed evil to go to a certain point, then he stopped it. Uh, and so we see that that happens even in our modern day. The, the Nazi movement got to, to a certain point, then it was stopped. Why was it stopped? Because it wasn't time for, for those things to, to, to spill over. God will allow things to look like they spill over in the time of trouble, which we are not quite yet to. So if we think we've got trouble now, we've got another thing coming, something much bigger, something much more difficult to deal with. But God gives us assurances that this kind of wickedness, ISIS included, will be removed. Let's look at Joel chapter 3, verses 9 to 14. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. All right, David, you have 30 seconds to, to sum up that scripture. Well, there's something you don't see every day. Beat your plowshares into swords. Yes. That, that, that we usually use it the other right, way around. Right, right, But in the, the very end times as these developments, as you mentioned, this is preparation time. We are not in the, 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 the severe time of trouble yet, but we're leading up to it. And this talks about it. And I like the one part there that says, let the weak say I am a mighty man. ISIS is a relatively small movement when you look at the whole world. But they say, we're mighty. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And many mighty movements uh, that are really weak have fallen through. But the finality is there that the wickedness will come to its full, will come to its completion, and then Jesus will take care of it. So in reality, what you're saying then is ISIS is a speck. They are a small group that represents something much larger that are, are working in this time leading up to, to the time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. So in the second hour, folks, what we have to do is investigate that further and, and we don't want to make light of the damage and the horrors that ISIS has done in the name of their representation of their God. And we want to put it all in perspective of what does the Bible say about those things and where we can all go from there. So for Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we'll be back after the news and all of that. But until then, important questions. Do not miss the next hour. Is ISIS in the Bible? What does it say? And what should we be looking for? We'll be back soon. But till then, think about it. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. You're tuned into Christian Questions. Join the conversation now on air or online at ChristianQuestions.com and download our app by searching for Christian Questions Radio. Here's Rick and Jonathan. 
Oscar Wilde once said, Always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. <laughs> and folks, this is one of those times where we have to really take that to heart. Good morning. I'm Rick. Welcome back. This is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And Jonathan, we are talking about something that's really, really important, very, very relevant for this day right here, right now. What's the subject? Well, Rick, our question is, what does the Bible say about the ISIS crisis? And our theme text is found in Psalms chapter 34, verse 16. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So we're talking about ISIS, and really the question is, is ISIS in the Bible? Is ISIS mentioned in Scripture? We have a special guest with us this morning, David Stein. David, welcome back for the second hour. Thank you. Good morning. That first hour goes like 10 minutes, doesn't it? Oh, it's so fast. <laughs> so what we did in the first hour, David, in looking at the, the, the big question, is ISIS in the Bible? And the answer is yes and no, and we're going to develop that as we go through uh, the second hour. But you suggested that there are several nations mentioned uh, in in scripture, specifically in um, it was in uh, Jeremiah, was it? Yes, it was uh, Jeremiah chapter nine. Okay, Jeremiah chapter nine. There were five different nations mentioned, and as going through them, the last two, Moab and Ammon, you suggested were the two uh, two divisions, the two main divisions of Islam. Yeah, by a process of elimination, we were looking at the nations that practice circumcision. Right. And we got down to Ammon and Moab, and the only other group that we hadn't talked at that point was the Islam, the Islamic movement, which practiced it. Therefore, we concluded that this must be symbolic representation of two factions of the Islamic movement. And we are interpreting Bible prophecy. So interpretation is subject to interpretation. I mean, that's really the bottom line. So we have to be careful about that, and we're making these suggestions uh, with, the, with the best spiritual mind that, that we can muster here. So we, we're looking at that, and when you say, okay, Ammon and Moab represent the two factions of Islam, and then reading other prophecies, you see how the, the, the way they act, especially uh, Moab, you're saying, oh, yeah, that does kind of make sense. Yeah, yeah. It, it connects together. That's, that's one of the things that makes you feel at least you're on the right track right. with interpretation, that you get agreement and, in fact, insight from other scriptures. All right, let's go back to Zephaniah 2.10, and let's pick up that, that thought where we left off. Jonathan, let's go to, to that scripture. Because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts, so, really, David, what it comes down to, pride and arrogance are always going to be opposed to God. And you have a real sense of arrogance of, of Islam, Muslims, against Israel right now. Yeah, again, looking at interpretation, we, we see that that describes what this group will do. So now you look at history and say, well, who's doing that? Who has this arrogance and who is taunting Israel? And the answer is the Islamic movement and many of the Arab nations within that movement. Okay. So now, now you've got an example here of, of that kind of uh, that the kind of arrogance. Now I don't know what was the source of this quote that you have. You know I didn't write it down, so I feel badly <laughs> about it. But uh, it, it's it's recent. It's from September, and uh, without reading the whole thing, it is a this is news, of course, that many of our our listeners will will understand and recognize. The religious leader of Iran is a fellow by the name of Khamenei. Mm -hmm. I'm probably not pronouncing it right. 
But one of the things he said, he's described Israel as a fake regime, and he predicted there won't be any Israel 25 years from now, and he made all kinds of statements like that. Is this taunting? Is this ravings the type of thing that Zechariah talked about? I think it's spot on. It is. So, when, again, you go back to the scripture, and you look at who is being spoken of, and you can now say, okay, these individuals are representing, for the moment, this faction which is playing this specific role in prophecy. And, and indeed, God says that because of this taunting, because of this arrogance, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to make a judgment upon you. So, the good news is that God is not only aware of it, but was aware of it long before it happened. Yes, again, going back to our theme, the face of the Lord is against evildoers, and this is part of that. The bad news is, you have to get through what the prophecies talk about to get to the good part. And and, and the bad part, I mean, when, when you look at, and, and I'm going to put you on the spot here really quickly before we get back to the taunting, trouble in the world, scale of 1 to 10, 10 being... The time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. One being very, everything is as, as, you know, as peaceful as the uh, sinful world can be. Where would you say we are in that? And, and this is subject to interpretation, I know. Now, again, you have to go, where in the world would you do? Let's just talk about general. General, I, I'm that's what say, I'm asking. I'm going to say two, three, maybe four. Uh, there's, there's a lot of trouble in the world, but we're not anywhere near what we expect. Now, if you go to, like, the city of Raqqa in, uh, in Syria... Where, right, we heard that sound bite. Well, I mean, that's like seven or eight. Right. And, you know, p- people are still living and they're still doing business, but the, the conditions are atrocious. Uh, where Christians are being uh, um, persecuted elsewhere because of Islamic in Africa and Indonesia. Yeah, people are being crucified. I mean, oh, come on. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you talk about barbarism and you're thinking, you know, you're going to go back thousands of years to bring back such torture for what? Yeah. But to, to be really make the distinction that we want to make is that this is all preparatory. Right. This is leading up. The, the, when Jesus said that there'll be a time of trouble such as the world has never seen, that says you can't even go back in history and find examples of this. And it will be a totality. Everybody in the world will feel this. So what we're seeing are pockets of severity, but not general severity. And, and we, we really are very, very comfortable. Uh, as we as we as we yeah. discuss all of these things, yeah. Can I go off script for just thirty seconds? Sure. <laughs> you remember the uh, the experience that um, Elijah had uh, after the uh, the um, contest of the prophets on Mount Baal? Yes. He ran away and he was up on the mountain, and God came through with a wind and with an earthquake and with a fire. Right. These are all elements of the time of trouble. But take note: this is the way that we interpret it, and many of these interpretations are done by almost everybody. Wind. What does wind represent? War. War. Remember right. Herman Hawke's book, Winds the of Winds War. Winds of War, right. Okay. What is war? It is international um, conflagration. It right. is international. And, and we've seen World War One and World yep. War Two as very dynamic representations of what it can mean. Exactly. So that's the first phase. The second phase is earthquake. Well, earthquake represents revolution. Now, what is revolution? It's a national level, not international. War is international. So more zeroing in. We're zeroing in now. And then finally you have fire. We think this represents anarchy. Where's the anarchy? That's down in your neighborhood. Right. It's on your street. So you notice that that, 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 uh, continuity there. International, national, and local. 
And that's how this time of the end starts to develop until we get to the focus of it. So as we, boy, we're just full of good news this morning, aren't we? <laughs> Folks, if you haven't thought, it's 866-985-4255, toll free, 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central, and that means we're on right now. And don't forget, you can message us on your app. If you don't have uh, your app on your smartphone, just go to your app store and get your free app from Christian Questions Radio. All right, let's get back to the taunting, because we've seen a lot of taunting against Israel, and it fits very much into Scripture. We're going to look at Psalm 83, verses 2 to 5, and we've spent, in, in past programs, a lot of time in the 83rd Psalm. We have. So we're going to touch on the 83rd Psalm today. Jonathan, let's go to uh, verses 2 to, uh, 2 to 5. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, Come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel will be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind against you, they make a covenant. All right, so so who's been saying these kinds of things? Well, we're going to see in the next verse, but what I want to emphasize is what they're saying. Come, let us wipe them out as a nation yep. at the name of Israel. We already saw that in the other scriptures, that there's this taunting. And we read, uh, we looked Khomeini. a little bit about Ayatollah Khomeini. It, it fits. It fits like a shoe right here in the last days. All right. Uh, Psalm 83, verses 6 through 8. The tents of Edom, and the Ishmaelites, and Moab, and the Hagrites, and the Gebel, and Ammon, and Amalek, and Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre, and Assyria also has joined with them. They have become a help for the children of Lot. All right, you know what? It was easy before, because we only had five nations mentioned, and now you've got all these other names, that I can't even pronounce them. <laughs> so help us out with this. What, what Edom, Ishmaelites, Moab, Hagarites, Gebel, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, Tyre, Assyria... What is it about them that brings them to this particular prophecy? Well, we note, first of all, this is who's saying what we read in verses 2 through 5. Okay. These are the ones doing the taunting, and there's more here. What we've done in the past uh, on this program is take a look at the geographical position of these nations, right. at least in ancient times. Now, as we said earlier, Moab, Hagarites, Gebel, Ammon, they don't exist anymore. Right. But if you look at where they used to exist, you find that these are all around what is Israel today. So we're going to suggest that this represents the Arab com component of the Islamic movement who have a vested interest in taking Israel out because they feel that they are being oppressed by her. Now, I have a really hard time with that. When you think about, if you look at Israel, it's like the size of New Jersey. And when you look at these other nations, they're, they're the size of the rest of the United States. And Israel has 7 million people in it. That's all. And you have tens of millions and tens of millions in these other nations. How can you be oppressed by this one democratic nation that is, is just there? Incidentally, in, in Israel, they have a, a million of the, the, the population of Israel are, are fully vested voting uh, Arab people. Jews are not allowed in these other nations. So how can they be feeling oppressed by them? It just does not make sense. Well, it's a case where there is no rationalization in hate. There, there's a hate there. Okay. And, yeah, and, and, and you, you can't sense. explain it. By the way, if you talk to many Israeli Arabs that live in there and they ask, what do you, what do you think of Israel? Because I watched a video of that. Oh, Israel's fine. You know, they treat us pretty good. We have a job and whatnot. But those on the outside still are, are 
stoking those fires of heat. And it's interesting. There, there is a common thread when you stoke the fires of hate. And again, let's go back to Nazi Germany. That's how Hitler created such a massive, powerful war machine. He stoked the fires of hate. He focused the fires of hate so that everybody could get on the same page behind that hatred. And look what happened. This is what's happening with the, with the ISIS movement today. Yeah, and, and if I can also make mention that this is, we're talking about a locale here in the mm-hmm. Middle East, but this hate is not located just there or constrained to there. The hatred of the Jews and the hate of Israel is worldwide. Yeah. Look what's happening mm-hmm. in France. The, the uh, immigration of Jews out of France, emigration out of France, has grown leaps and, town and bounds because they no longer feel safe there. Much of Europe is experiencing the same thing because of the hate. We have not seen that rear its ugly head in any large degree in this country yet. Not that there isn't anti-Semitism here. You do hear it. But it's verbal at this point. That's another development, an unfortunate development, that I think that we will see in the future. Okay. What about Assyria in this particular prophecy? Assyria is mentioned here. Well, Assyria is, it stands out as different here. All of those nations except Assyria are Semitic nations. They are actually relatives of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they st- have the same forefathers. Assyria was, was an Aryan nation. Now, in the past, and this is another example of how our understanding of these prophecies grows and changes over time, Assyria was to the north of Israel. So right. in the past, we've interpreted it to be nations from the north, perhaps Russia. Mm-hmm. And we've tied it in, in in other places, and we've looked at that. But uh, recently, again, the, the same brother that I mentioned earlier, um, he noted something very unusual about the use of Assyria uh, in Ezra chapter 6.22. All right, Jonathan, let's read that quickly here. We're almost out of time for this segment. And they observed the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had caused them to rejoice, and had turned the heart of the people of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Okay, so what's the unusual thing? Well, the, the, the unusual thing here is that there was no king of Assyria at the time this was written in Ezra. Okay. In fact, if you read earlier, you find the king is Persian, King Darius. But the... The usage of Assyria at that that time was for that king as well. In other words, they, in their minds, in the ancient mind, the king of Assyria, king of Persia were the same person. But what we're doing is we're linking now this use of the word Assyria, not with the Assyrian nation or or empire, which was gone by the time of of this, Mm -hmm. but we are linking it with the king of Persia. What is Persia called today? Not Iran? It is Iran. Exactly right. So, going backwards now, we see that Assyria has helped these others. Iran is helping others. And Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini and all his cohorts, are a sponsor of terrorism. They help terrorism out. So, what we're looking at now is we're bringing Persia, we're bringing Iran into the picture. Okay, so now the plot thickens. We started out talking about ISIS, and now Iran becomes a major part, a major player in this whole prophetic look. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick with our special guest David Stein, and our subject is, What Does the Bible Say About the ISIS Crisis? Coming up, are the ISIS and Muslim threats the biggest threats of our time? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. You're listening to Christian Questions. 
see videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject for today is, what does the Bible say about the ISIS crisis? We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. And don't forget to sign up for CQ Rewind, the full edition, at ChristianQuestions.com. Okay, so David, in the end of the last segment, you had mentioned that uh, the the prophecy in Psalm 83 that mentions all those nations, you talked about Assyria, and about a sort of a reconsideration that Assyria is representative of Iran and not Russia. Yes, we looked at Psalm 83 as a battle that involves Israel's close neighbors, and then Assyria, or we're interpreting it now as Iran, Persia, it was helping this, but was not actively involved. And we didn't take the time. You read the rest of the psalm, we find that that battle concludes with a great victory for God's people, for Israel. So all of those nations against that tiny little speck of a nation, the tiny little speck of a nation ends up winning. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's going to be a repeat of what we saw in 1948, 1956, 1973, 1967 in particular. Now, what's important about that scripture is that those participants there are different from participants in other prophecies that talk about the final. The Psalm 83 battle is not the final battle of what goes on in Israel. Right. It, it's, it's very much a, um, a regional type of a, of, of a yes, situation. Yes, very much. Regional, okay. that's well put. Okay. So there's a lot of development here. And, and so as we go through all of the development of what we see in Scripture, one of the things that, that comes out very plainly is that ISIS is small in relation to all of this other stuff, but they're important because they are putting out the ideology and they've taken the opportunity and are representative of the some of the evil that is focused to, to uh, disrupt the world. Yeah, remember the scripture that we said, let the weak say I am strong? Right. They, they couldn't stand up to any of the armies of the world. And the armies of the world don't come. That's why they continue to exist. But they think that they're really something. And But again... It's not to diminish the damage that they do in the places where they are because it is the most horrible kinds of things that you can even imagine. So, so let's go to another, another scripture to show the overthrow of this Moab and Ammon, uh, Ammon, which are representative of the two factions of, of Islam. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 to 14. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people, who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathras, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the isles of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. So, so hang hang on, Josh. David, there are a million names in here, and this can be utterly confusing. So, we're going to read through verse 14, and then just see if we can sort of simplify this so we we can put it in context and move forward. Verse 14. They will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. Together, they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab, and the sons of Ammon will be subject 
to them. Okay, so first of all, I noticed that Moab and Ammon are there, so that makes me feel like, okay, I, I know that part. But what, what's, what's the plunder? What's happening? What are all these names? Where do they fit? Well, we wanted to read verses 11 through 13 to set a context. Verse 14 was really our key mm-hmm. um, to bring in Ammon and Moab and Edom once again. We've seen these before. And you see the result there is that they will be defeated by Israel. But we wanted to bring in the others because notice in, in verse 11, it will happen on that day. Well, what day? The day that brings the Jews back to the land, brings Israel back to the land well, from this like, place, that, that place. sounds like right now. Yeah, yeah, it brings it right into the 20th and 21st century, and that's why we wanted to include it. And uh, in, in reference to uh, all of these jealousies and whatnot, keep in mind that all of this takes place in trouble. I think it's in, in Haggai. It talks about the Valley of Achor, uh, and Achor means trouble. So all of this regathering and all of the things associated with it are not easy. You remember, we've talked about Nazi Germany a couple of times now in this. That there was one good thing that came out of that awful Holocaust, and is that it brought the Jews back to Israel. Mm-hmm. Now, somebody said, well, how can you justify that? And that's a whole other discussion. But it did have that effect. And God's Word said that he would have that effect. He would send hunters and fishers and make that happen. But we want to emphasize that we are interpreting prophecy and we want to give everyone confidence that we've got the right time period. Okay, so what about the plunder? They Together they will plunder the sons of the east. Who's plundering what from whom? Well, what would you say uh, in the Middle East, in the Arab states, what's their number one export? Oil. Oil. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's, no-brainer, yeah, right? I, I know, I know. Pick me. <laughs> yeah. um, again, we're interpreting here. We're saying, well, what is it that they have that Israel could use and, and benefit from? And oil comes to mind. So... Whatever the plunder is, I think oil has to be at the top of our list of, uh, of, of guesses of what it would be. Okay, so we're, we're putting prophecies in place. We're looking at them in relation to the Islamic presence in the Middle East uh, and to what effect it all has on Israel. Because really when it comes down to it, we look at ISIS and we say, wow, it affects the world. But the main effect of all of these prophecies is first to Israel and then to the world. And we can see how it always comes back to Israel, and then the ripple effect comes out to the rest of the world. Yeah, it, it always comes back to Israel. I and mean, we say to all of our Christian friends, watch Israel. Right. That is, as far as Bible prophecy, that is where you're going to see the most fulfillment and the most interest going forward. Okay. All right. So, so let's go a little bit further now. And, and again, the, interestingly, as we go further, we, we walk away from ISIS as an entity, uh, and we just take what they represent as part of prophecy. Yeah, if I can make just one little introduction of what we're going to have Jonathan read for us. We looked at Psalm 83. There was a battle, and what that battle produces is some level of, I almost hesitate to say peace, but some level of order now where the threat, the immediate threat from Israel's neighbors is removed. And there is some ascendancy of Israel getting the plunder of oil. Incidentally, by the way, ISIS, when they plunder nations, they, oil is part of what they right, plunder right. as well. Right, right, and, and that, that makes sense. And they make use of it, right. that's right. So now we have a situation where uh, Israel is at relative peace, and we're setting it up now for the final scene uh, in the end times. We're going to use the word Armageddon at this point. You know, the, okay, the, so now we're coming to big trouble. The, the big trouble, All that's right. right. So, so the trouble meter, you know, you said was at three or four. Now the trouble meter is starting it to get up. It ratchets up very quickly. Okay. Right. All right. So now Ezekiel chapter 38, uh, verses 1 to 13. And we're going to take this in pieces. And again, this is prophecy. And what we're going to do is interpret 
prophecy, interpretation is certainly subject to discussion. Let's keep that in mind. Ezekiel 38. Jonathan, let's start with verses 1 to 4. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all your army, horses, and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. Okay, let, let's, let's stop there. So you've got a lot of names again. I am against you, Gog, Prince of Rosh. Who, who, who are we speaking of here and what, what's beginning to happen? Well, remember, we're at now at the very end of the, uh, basically, of the permission of evil. This is just before the setting up of the kingdom. So this is the, the, the final conflict, if you will. And these uh, names here, Gog and Rosh and Tubal and Mesic and whatnot, they, they all are representative of forces that are coming down from the north. Now, Gog appears to be the one in charge here. And we might say that uh, we, we've heard some interpretations it might be a man. I'm more inclined to think that it's, it's the satanic forces behind the scenes that are causing this to happen. But what is of interest, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, you can make direct connections geographically with Russia, Moscow, and Tublisk. They, they are cities in the north. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting. I wouldn't focus too much on that and say it's still it's representative of the whole group that comes down. And there's more, as we're going to see in the next verse. But you see that there's hooks and jaws, that there is circumstances now that are going to draw down there. And one of the circumstances, which we will see in later verses, is that wanting to get some of that plunder that Israel got in the previous war. So the previous war was much more of a local thing. And that puts Israel in a position of ascendancy. And now this is a next stage where others look at that, from not from the local area anymore, but from further away, saying, we want some of that. Exactly right, Rick. And again, there, there are probably three or four scriptures where God says, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem. You know, we'll look for that in, in, in Rewind. We'll include some of those scriptures there. But that's what's going on here. Okay. Let's go to verses 5 through 9 of Ezekiel 38. Persia. Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer with all its troops, Bethrogomar, for the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you, be prepared, and prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be summoned, in the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continental waste. But its people who are brought out from the nations, they are living securely, all of them. You will go up. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Okay, so now you're adding Persia and Ethiopia, um, and it sounds like there's this big, big, big uh, group, like you said, all these nations from the outside coming in, 
And but it's interesting. It talks it says about the mountains of Israel have been a continual waste. You know, and it sounds like well, wait, didn't we just say that they had won a battle before? So so how do you put all of these verses into into a a perspective? Well, again, we can interpret the uh, many of these nations from their geographic positions in the past. But but notice you've got from the north, mm-hmm. and then you've got Ethiopian put that's from the south. Then you've got Persia from the east. So we're talking about nations from everywhere coming in. That's the idea. Persia here is important because yes. we noticed that earlier. Persia represents modern-day Iran. Iran right. So Iran is not stopped in that battle of Psalm 83 that we saw. They, they helped those that were involved in it, but they are preserved until the end. And notice after many days uh, that they would be summoned, they would come down. Now, to, to uh, address your question, Israel, which had been a continual waste. If you look at the land of Israel before Israel came back, before the Jews came back, what was it? It was a continual waste. It was waste. swamps <laughs> yeah, right, and whatnot. Right. It was, it was not, definitely not the land of promise. You know, there was Bedouins that lived in there, didn't have much of a population be- at all. But they brought it back. They brought it back, and it's a rich land today. It's a productive land today. And notice here, they are living securely, all of them. Well, we can't describe Israel like that today. They've got right. bombers and things like that. Right, right. So that's why we took the time to look at Psalm 83, just to establish how that security comes. And we'll see, we'll see it mentioned a little bit more in the next group of verses. So they are living security. They are living at peace, not too worried. And now here comes the, the adversary from, from all nations of the earth, basically represented there, coming down to address that. All right, so just when you think it's safe, let's go to verses <laughs> 10 to 13. Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil plan, and you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest, that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates, to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited, and against the people who are gathered from the nation who have acquired cattle and goods, who live at the center of the world, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, and with all its villages will say to you, Come, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? So it sounds like there's a... uh it's interesting how prophecy is written because it's it's written sort of as a story. You know, you, you've got the storyteller uh, suggesting what different players in the story are going to be doing, saying, and thinking. And in this section of verses, it's talking about just like what you described. After the Psalm 83 conflagration, you have a relative peace. And this opens the door for this next a time of, of, of great trouble in Israel. Yeah, I like your little nuance there, relative peace. You know, we're not suggesting everything is, is fine, but the main threat has been removed so that they don't, you know, they build a wall in Jerusalem today, keep uh, the uh, Palestinians out, you know, in, in Israel. Um, these are symbolic walls. They're not going to have the military alliances that they need to guarantee their peace anymore. They're going to have this, this relative peace. And you know what, and I hadn't noticed, I don't use the New American Standard Bible all that much. And uh, I had not noticed until just now, even though I read this over several times, who, people who live at the center of the world, 
Yeah. Remember we just mentioned, that's where the center of attention is going to be, and, and this particular translation makes that uh, clear. One last note on this t- set. There's several nations here that are not involved in the attacking. They're not the military portion of this, but they're commercial centers, Sheba, Didan, and the merchants of Tarshish. Mm-hmm. And they're addressing the attacker, and they say, well, what are you doing? You're coming down to take a spoil and, and whatnot. So they aren't participating in the attack, and yet they're watching. And they have a commercial, a vested probably commercial interest in this. So uh, as we watch the real world develop, we will see this this group of antagonistic and aggressive nations, and we'll see another group of nations not involved but still watching and interested in what was happening. So interesting how ISIS has sort of fallen off of of our conversation. So we started talking about ISIS And what it ends up being is a small piece in a very, 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 very large puzzle. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan, here with Rick, with our special guest David Stein, and our subject, what does the Bible say about the ISIS crisis? Coming up, does God's endgame have room for ISIS and their Muslim heritage? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. This is Christian Questions. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866 985-4255, that's 866-985-4ALL, or you can message us on your app. So, David, as is typical with Christian questions, what we typically do is we go through a conversation and we save the best for last. And because that's the way God's plan works. God's plan saves the best for last. And we started out talking and focusing specifically and only on ISIS, an organization that is bent on on pain, suffering, torment, torture, and destruction, all in the name of their interpretation of their God. And the question Jonathan asked at the end of the last segment was, okay, does God's endgame have room for ISIS and their Muslim heritage? Does ISIS have a future? The answer is no. It's an evil organization. It's, it's got wicked practices. And we saw in many scriptures, even our theme text for the, for the day, that face of the Lord is against evildoers. He will cut them, uh, cut the memory of them off in the earth. ISIS as an organization uh, is doomed, along with every other evil organization that has existed on earth. All right, so good news there. Now, what about their Muslim heritage? What about those individuals who have that Muslim heritage, who have, who have passed that heritage on from generation to generation to generation? Does God's endgame have room for them? The answer is yes. We know that Jesus died for everyone, and we've talked about that in this program many times. So the individuals that are involved in these evil organizations will have an opportunity. I want to give an example of of maybe how this works. Most of us are familiar with uh, Jonah the prophet. Yes, Jonah and the the great fish. And the great fish. Everybody calls it a whale, whale, but technically it's not. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, Jonah was told, you know, go to the city of Nineveh. That's a wicked city of Assyria at that time. And tell them that I'm going to destroy the city in, I think, 30 days, he said. Well, Jonah ran away. But he came back, and he delivered that message. And what did the city do? They repented. So this is one curious example 
where a true prophet had a true message from the true God that didn't come true. The <laughs> city was not destroyed right, in 30 days. Right, because God said he was going to destroy it, and then he didn't. He didn't, right. But however, I think this furnishes us a beautiful example of God's interest in individuals. The evil city of Nineveh was destroyed by their repentance, by their own people. So the individuals were saved and the evil city was, was destroyed. So it's the gone. prophecy did come true, just yes. not the way you would have expected. Exactly. And I, I think that furnishes us an example for how God will, will deal with um, people that are evil in heart today. But the whole idea is to kill that evil, to get rid of that evil, to convert all mankind back to a love of righteousness and a love of God. And all the members of ISIS, if they will, they still have to want to, God will provide them everything that they need to live forever, basically. All right. You know, you, meant, you mentioned something earlier in the program about uh, the, the, the Arabic, um, those who are Muslim from, from Arabic descent, are related. They're, 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 they're cousins to, to Israel. So when you think about that, God is very gracious and generous. And, and we want to take a look and see if there's something in, in the works for them specifically because of that relationship. So let's look at Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom, and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah. Okay, Moab and Ammon, there they show up again. Yep. A place possessed by nettles and salt pits, and a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them, and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. Okay. The remainder of my nation will inherit them. Oh, this this is so beautiful. I like this. Let me just go back a, a little bit about the judgment. They, they'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah will never come back. Those evil cities are gone forever. But the people that are there are still redeemed and will ha- have an opportunity to change their lives and to obey God and get eternal life. And it says in the scripture that they'll have an easier time than, than yeah, cities that, Jesus, that, that rejected Jesus. Yeah, very, very good observation. Jesus said they would come back right, in that. Right, you know, right. and, and as bad as they were, they weren't so bad at heart as some of the people at that time. Beautiful illustration. But here's an example of why it is good as Bible students to look at particular words. Every word in Scripture, even through the translations, you know, we have to watch translations, of course, but is inspired of God. It says, and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. It doesn't say that they would inherit their land, but Israel would inherit them. Them. Uh-huh. It, and now think about what that means. That's Israel is going to be the blesser nation of all mankind. And now they inherit these people. Well, what are they going to do to them? They're going to bless them. <laughs> Okay, and he said that with great emphasis, I might add. So, so Israel inherits them for the sake of blessing them. Let's look at another scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 2. Let's go to verses 9 and then jump down to verse 19. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given heir to the sons of Lot as a possession. When you come opposite the sons of Ammon, do not harass them, nor provoke them, for I will give not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. So, again, you have Moab and you have Ammon again mentioned, and now every time I see those names, it's like, okay, ka-ching, I think I get this now. They are representative of the two factions of Islam. And the interesting thing in these Deuteronomy verses is they keep their own land. Yes, this is wonderful. Let's just look at this from the standpoint of Moses' time. 
God is telling the people of Israel, don't harass them. I gave them their land. Moab has land that I gave them. Ammon has land that I gave them. You got your own land. You just go over here. Now, of course, Ammon and Moab didn't cooperate. They attacked them and whatnot, and we're worried. But it's important here that God's promises never go unfulfilled. That promise that he gave Moab and Ammon as the original Moab and Ammon now, the physical, real Moab and Ammon, they will have a promise in the kingdom. They will have a place in the kingdom. And using the symbolic application, that means the people represented by Moab and Ammon, we think that the Islamic movement, they too have promises that God has for them. Okay, so they, uh, there is a special opportunity for the people not for the ideology, but yes. for the people. All right, so, so now we're, we're starting to, to run out of time here. We've got maybe five or six minutes left. So, so let me just ask you, before we go to our, our, our final scripture for, for today, let me just ask you the, the practical question in terms of getting back to the ISIS conversation and all that. So you have a scriptural perspective that ISIS is not in scripture from the standpoint of their organization, but they are representative in scripture of an ideology and an opportunity. Yes. Okay. So what do you do? What do I do? What does the average listener do in looking at what ISIS does today? Because we keep saying, well, you know, it's not so bad in relation to the, the time of trouble, but it is bad. It's awful. It's horrific. So how do we as individuals put that into a perspective that would honor God, but also stand up for things that we should stand up for? Well, you're absolutely right. It, it is horrific, and the evil of that is unquestioned. It needs to stop. What individual Christians can do and what we must do is very simple. What Jesus taught, pray for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the final answer to all of these things. It will take away the evil. It will take away that horrific atrocities that people, and it will give everyone an opportunity to, to have a change of heart and to conform. Again, he's going to cut off evildoers. So in the kingdom, Either you stop being an evildoer and live, or if you don't, you get cut off. So we, what we need to do then in, in, in living in our world today is we need to have hope and live our hope and not be afraid to speak out about our hope. And we should condemn the actions of, of, of such organizations. We shouldn't say, well, you know, God's going to take care of it so I don't have to say anything. No, you should speak up. Yeah. You should yeah. speak up because evil needs to be pointed out. That's why the permission of evil is here. It needs to be recognized. It needs to be labeled. It needs to be highlighted so we can never have to go down this road again. Yeah, that is a test of our Christianity. It whether, really is. Whether we're willing to speak the truth about what evil is and wickedness does and, and, and the results of it or just keep quiet because we don't want to be embarrassed about the it. The bottom line is God has got this in control. So yes. let, let's go now to our last scripture, Isaiah chapter 19, verses 21 to 25. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so they will return to the Lord, and he will respond to them and will heal them. In that day there will be a highway for Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Okay, so so David, Egypt, well, you said, was a representative of sort of like the the, the world. Mm -hmm. So so what's happening in this particular prophecy before we finish the last two verses? This shows that the ultimate plan of God is to bring all people together under under Christ, 
bring all things together into Christ, as, a, as our New Testament scripture says. Both the, the physical ancient e- nation of Egypt and Assyria will be reunited, and the symbolic Egypt, the world, and symbolic Assyria, all elements of the world will be brought together in one and in peace and harmony once again. Okay, so they're all brought together, and it's interesting, in that verse it said, you know, God will strike them but heal them. So in other words, I'm going to press you into learning righteousness. Yes. And I'm going to be generous and merciful, but I'm going to be firm. Exactly right. And again, the day of judgment has to be looked at in context of reconciliation. That's what it's there for. Okay, let's finish the verses. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Isn't that reconciliation? That is reconciliation, and that is that is startling, because Assyria, you said, was, was representative of Persia, which is Iran. Egypt is, is, is the world, and you say... God looks at Egypt, the, the world, as my people, and looks at Assyria as the work of his hands? I mean, how do you get there except by the process of real, true, full reconciliation? Yeah, and as you, as you noted in the previous verses, God is going to strike the whole world. Jesus, his king, is going to strike the whole world. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. You know, the time of trouble we've been talking about it is a very, very difficult time, but it will wake people up. And when they see the horrid, uh, the, the horrible experience of mankind through more than 6,000 years associated with sin, and then they see the peace and the tranquility and the love that will begin in Israel and grow outward, they will want to be a part of it. They will be fed up with everything else. All right. So, so David, we're, we're about out of time. Just one last very quick point, and I wish we had more time for this. But you know, the idea of ISIS is one of the outgrowths of the activities of organizations like ISIS is pressing Jews to go back to Israel. That is where, if you follow what the prophecies talk about, you say, well, you know, send them back to Israel. That's where the blessings begin. So those who go back there can be part of the beginning of the blessing. So it's a huge privilege to, to be there. And, and, you know, ISIS in their horror actually provokes that. So wrap, us, <laughs> wrap this up in 30 seconds, brother. Go. <laughs> well, ISIS is a demonstration of how the problem of evil can become global, causing disruption of peace everywhere. But it also demonstrates how new alliances can form that we wouldn't expect, like the unity of the Arab nations against ISIS and the growing cooperation of, uh, between Israel and Egypt, not to mention Jordan and Saudi Arabia. And you've already mentioned about accelerating the emigration of Jews from around the world back to Israel. Dave, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Folks, bottom line is this. God's got it in control. All of these things were prophesied to happen. God doesn't make them happen. He just watches them unfold because he knows what sin can produce. He also knows what the ransom sacrifice of Jesus produces. And that is justice, resurrection, day of judgment, and reconciliation. And all of these things will work together for good because God said so. Make sure you look at the trouble of the world through the eyes of scriptural hope. For Jonathan, Rick, and David and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. We'll be back next week with another subject. But till then, the Bible and prophecy. Think about it.